Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with yoga teacher and therapist Molly Lannan Kenny. In our conversation, we talk about her time in the Seattle grunge and Ashtanga scene back in the early 90s, transitioning from her clinical work as a speech pathologist to developing her own approach to yoga based therapy, and her recent studies at the Living School for Contemplative Christianity and the connections between Christian mysticism and Vedanta. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've been following Molly's work for a few years and feel a strong resonance with her approach to therapy and her punk rock spirit. She's definitely not afraid to speak her mind and tell it like she sees it, which I really appreciate. I feel like I've found a kindred spirit and a teacher that I can learn a lot from. So I hope that you get as much from this conversation as I did. Before we get to that, I just want to remind you that this podcast is made possible through the support of my Patreon subscribers. If you value these conversations and want to keep them coming, then please consider becoming a Patreon. For only a few dollars a month, you'll get early access to episodes, podcast extras, as well as access to hours of yoga practice resources to support you on your medicine path. In order to keep this podcast free and independent, I need your support. So if you're interested, please go to patreon.com forward slash medicine path to find out more. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Molly Lannan Kenny on the Medicine Path.
All right. I'm here with Molly Lannon Kenny. Thanks a lot for joining me today, Molly. I'm really excited to talk to you. Sure. Me too. Okay. Let's go way back before we get into what you're doing now. Um, I'd love to know how you first got into yoga and if you remember your first yoga class and when the light kind of turned on for you around yoga. Yeah, you know what? It's, it's, uh, it's cool that you're asking that question right now because as of probably um, just a couple of months ago, I would have told you that I started yoga in a gym in 1996 or 97 or or even later, 2000, I don't know, sometime 2000. Um, and that, and that, and I had this whole story that I told over and over that it was because people always told me I was so stretchy and bendy and I should do yoga, but I was born in 1966. That didn't mean a lot to me when people were saying that to me as a kid. Um, but my dad would take us into the big Barnes and Noble shop at 18th and 5th in New York City. And we would be allowed to like every, like everybody could pick out like two books or something. And I remember it always like going in front of uh, BKS Iyengar's light on yoga and like pulling it out and looking at it and almost being like, um, almost like it was like pornographic or something like being like, uh, yeah, like I was looking at something like sort of occult or something I couldn't, shouldn't quite be looking at or so that I had had this interest in yoga. Anyway, so that's like the narrative that I always told when I was asked that question. Um, well, my sister died about well seven months ago. And as part of that process, I cleaned out her house. And as part of cleaning out her house, I found all these letters that I had written to her over the years. Um, and a lot of them were talking about things that I literally have absolutely no recollection about. So I think that's interesting to me thinking about uh, how faulty our memory is. Um, and one of the letters is from 1987 and I'm in college and I'm telling her that I went to my first yoga class and, um, but in the whole letter, it doesn't mention anything about doing any movement. I tell her about going to this like kind of kooky lady's house and that I learned about this little point of light that was inside of us and that we were all perfect and divine um, and that she burned really strong incense, but I liked it anyway. Um, so, so it was, it was shocking to me and I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely going to write a blog about that, not only about the faulty memory, but also about that that was actually apparently my first yoga class was somewhere in 1987 and that by yoga then I had no understanding or relationship of it to yoga asana. So that to me is really interesting too, but I was hooked. I was hooked just, just on the idea of, of that little tiny bit of philosophy. So apparently that's how I got into yoga. <laughs> huh. So what do you, you would have been what, uh, about 21 at that time? 1987. Yeah, exactly. 21. Where were you living? Was that in New York? No, I was at Tufts University up in Massachusetts. So I was living in probably Medford, Somerville on the Tufts University campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when do you remember going to your first asana based class? Um, that was, that was later. That was in, like I was saying, probably, no, it couldn't have been 2000. It would have been maybe like 1990 seven or 96 or something like that. Um, and that was just, uh, I was like a real gym rat. Well, I was, I was plagued by body image issues my whole life as, as are many women in particular. And so I was constantly like working out, going to the gym and, uh, and I saw this, this class, you know, it was yoga on the gym schedule. And I, I, 
I, I thought that that was the first time that I was like, oh, yoga, I should try this. People always told me I should try it. Um, and it happened to be Ashtanga. And I think that's the only reason that I stuck with it at that time, because that's all that I was interested in. If it would have been the class that now I'm recollecting from 1987, I would have been like, yeah, no. Um, but because it was Ashtanga, I was super into it. So that was, that was, my, that was my entree into asana. And, um, and I have profound gratitude for the Ashtanga system without having any gratitude towards the founders um, and leaders and teachers. Um, but for some people like me, were it not for such a highly physical and intense system, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have found the rest of yoga. And so I always feel like that's also important when I'm talking and teaching to people. We like to throw out this thing of gym yoga with an immediate like denigration. And, mm. and you know, I always like to remind people that it doesn't necessarily matter where you found your yoga, right? We don't know what's going to be the entree into something something deeper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I took a number of classes early on in, uh, you know, I remember, I think my first classes were in the basement of a local art gallery because there were no yoga studios at that time. And then later taking classes at the YMCA. And, you know, I think, uh, I think you're right. There is this kind of like snobbery in the yoga world. Um, but there's some great teachers teaching in those places, you know, Absolutely. Who, who are just like, kind of uh, journey person, community yoga teachers who have no aspirations to be Instagram superstars, but they found this practice somewhere along the way and they just want to share it, you know, without any... Well, and I would even offer that sometimes those, those, sometimes those folks can actually be more mature and have more depth and more knowledge and more like deeper knowledge about the practice because it, it's just, it's their, it's their deep like sort of internal spiritual passion versus folks who maybe have a bigger platform. And like you said, like an Instagram platform, like they get, they get stuck and caught up in that cycle. So they're not necessarily continuing to, to dive deep into the spirituality of yoga. So oftentimes I think you can actually find better yoga teachers in the more little known, the little known places because they're, they're doing it, as you said, they're doing it completely for themselves and then sharing just out of, the profundity of what it's done for them instead of like with an agenda. Yeah. And, you know, I meet a lot of uh, kind of career yoga teachers who don't even have a personal practice and who haven't done in-depth study with, you know, a single teacher. Um, yeah. So it's almost like those people who are sharing it because it's their passion. It's like, it's a vocation. Um, it's coming from, yeah, that well of, of personal practice and, you know, recognizing some benefit in it and just wanting to share it without any career aspiration. There's something like kind of pure about that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So then you got into Ashtanga and that fed your, um, I guess your desire to have a strong lean body and to sweat and work hard and shape your body and all that. Right. How long did you do that? And I was really good at it, like, quote, unquote, air quotes. Like, I was really good. So it, uh, that, like, that competitive piece, that ego piece totally appealed to my personality. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that could be uh, useful at, at some point in your development just to keep you going back to it, you know. Um, so how long did you do that until you started to think about becoming a teacher? 
Um, well, I never really thought about becoming a teacher. So um, in the Ashtanga style, at least back in those days. So I guess I did that for like, oh, maybe three or four years or something. I'm just trying to think of the days. Yeah, maybe three, four years. Um, I was really dedicated to this particular community in Seattle, which now in retrospect, um, definitely had some cult kind of leanings. Um, and I was definitely, you know, hooked in pretty hard. Um, and so in the Ashtanga uh, method, a lot of times people don't do teacher trainings because all of your do all you're doing, I don't want to say all you're doing, but some Ashtangi will hear this and be just at me. But if you can teach, for example, you're good, again, air quotes at the primary series, and you know the whole thing by heart, and you know the script. So then your teacher's like, okay, because if you're at these Ashtanga exclusive studios, which it seems like there's less of them, I mean, I'm not as involved any, I mean, I'm not involved at all anymore, but it, it seems to me that there's less of these like Ashtanga exclusive, like that that was sort of this wave that came and went a little bit. Um, but anyway, so in those studios, they're only doing Ashtanga. They're not doing anything else. There's no like riffs off anything. And so when the teacher needs a break or whatever, they're going to ask one of the students who's good and knows the script to do, to sub a class. So that's, that's what I did. I just started subbing classes for my teachers, um, and really just doing the whole, I mean, I can probably still do the entire script in my mind of the primary series and most of the second series. So, um, so that's how I started teaching was just by, just by doing the script for my teachers. I never, I've actually never done a teacher training. I've never done a yoga teacher training. Hmm. Like, uh, yeah, I've had lots of training, but I've never done a yoga teacher training. Yeah. So that, that was in Seattle. So you'd found your way to the Pacific Northwest. Um, mm -hmm. and I was telling you before we started the conversation that, uh, you know, I lived on Vancouver Island for years and, uh, would frequently travel to Seattle, see some friends. And sometimes when I was in town, I used to go see Troy Lucero, mm -hmm. who was kind of like a, a renegade Ashtanga teacher. Um, and I always really enjoyed him. Like at that time I was practicing Ashtanga Vinyasa. That was my daily practice. Um, and I really enjoyed his approach. Uh, he was very non-dogmatic and he wasn't part of the kind of Ashtanga system, although that was the kind of template or foundation of what he taught. Yeah. Um, did you ever run into him? Yeah. Uh, Troy used to be a good friend of mine. And I only say used to just because I've sort of, you know, lost track of him since I've moved away. Um, he was at my wedding and uh, I used to practice with him um, with some regularity and I would sub his classes for him. And uh, uh, yeah, so I had a nice relationship with Troy and you're right. He's a, an excellent teacher. Um, a lovely person and um, a very strong person in the sense that he is, uh, he studies a lot, but he's also un, uh, he's unmoved by people's like critiques of him or what he should be doing or that he should be teaching in a more classical way. And he's really been able to keep himself out of the fray of all the the stupid Ashtanga and yoga crap <laughs> while still continuing to teach authentically. And I, I would assume he's still teaching up in Seattle. He has a great following. Yeah, Troy's a, Troy's a wonderful person. And as much as I would recommend anyone, like as a particular yoga teacher in Seattle, I would certainly recommend Troy. 
Yeah. Yeah, he was a little past my time in terms of when I was there at the Ashtanga Yoga School. I think the Ashtanga Yoga School was either shutting down or had just shut down when Troy got there. And I think, no, I guess they were in the process of shutting down because Troy had uh, uh, made some overtures to maybe work with the folks at um, AYS, which was the other, like, they were like the stronghold in Seattle and like the, I guess, through the 90s and early 2000s like that was the place you were either at AYS or you were like we rolled our eyes at you you weren't the real deal was that <laughs> is that David Garigs and his partner at the time correct yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah David's very uh he's a very passionate Ashtangi and follower of uh Patabi Joyce yeah but I, I enjoy him too in certain aspects you know like I don't buy into everything that uh he's passionate about but um I spent a weekend with him once and uh yeah I just kind of liked him uh as a person and I loved his intensity it was really kind of um I don't know fun to be around yeah for sure for sure he's got lots of good qualities I used to do an awesome um I can't do it anymore, but I used to do an awesome imitation of David Gurig when I studied with him a lot. Um, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a complex figure, but definitely has a lot of good qualities. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So you're, you're in the Seattle Ashtanga world, which I'm, actually I didn't know this about you because uh, when I tuned into you, it was because uh, I was interested in the yoga therapy approach that you developed. Um, and I, I don't know, I heard about you a, a few years ago and just started subscribing to your newsletter and yeah. I just, uh, really enjoyed everything that I've read and, uh, I'm really intrigued by this approach. So I want to get into where things shifted for you when you started to develop a more therapeutic approach of your own. Yeah. Um, so that was just an interesting time in my life. So I was, I was really dedicated to Ashtanga. Um, we also talked a little bit about playing music before we started the interview. Um, and I was the bass player and front person in several, uh, fairly popular Seattle bands in the whole like nineties rock era. So I was, I was doing that and I, wait, 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 slow down, slow down. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a grunge child, so I got to hear, can you throw out some names and see if uh, I recognize it? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know if you would, unless you're really in that scene. So the very, well, uh, well, at first I was in a band called Bare Bones that was with my sister and um, a friend who now is in a band called The Hinges, which you should jot down that name because that is the most beautiful music. Um, they're out of Olympia. Then I joined an all-girl punk band called 66 Saints that was really hot at the time. That was like maybe 91 to 94, something like that. Um, And uh, yeah, we toured all over and played all over and put out a couple records. And then then that band broke up. And then I played alone with the the drummer. We played a bunch of um, just solo, like bass and drum shows under various names, um, including Siren and Fire Pit Belly. Then I put together a band called Matchless. And we played together for uh, a little over five years. And we did a bunch of touring and played North by North or South by Southwest and Bumbershoot and put out a couple of records. And then that band uh, disappeared, and then I went back to doing the bass and drums. And I would also just play bass. Um, I did a lot of solo bass shows. Like I would travel around teaching yoga and yoga therapy, and everywhere I'd go, I'd bring my bass, and I'd find open mics no matter where I was, and I'd just get up there and start 
uh, playing the bass and singing, which was kind of awesome because people aren't really used to seeing someone get up and just play the bass. Um, so yeah, anyway, and that, those were always under the name of Siren or Fire Pit Belly too, what the second time around. Wow. Uh, Fire Pit Belly, that's the name of, that's what you published your book under the press, right? So yeah. That, yep, that must exactly. be your press. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. I mean, um, you know, I'm really like, I still am nostalgic for the nineties to this day, like zine culture, um, DIY, all of that are things that I brought into my own career as a yoga teacher. Like I very much, um, still have those same values, uh, that I had back then when I was playing in grunge bands and recording in my bedroom and all that stuff. Um, so it's just great. Yeah, me too. I love what you're, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I like the way you named it and added in like the zines and the, yeah, DIY culture and just really, um, yeah, DIY and uh, very much of like an agitator culture and and, and advocacy and um, just, yeah, DIY. I'm going to do this. And as a matter of fact, I've used that term. I put years ago, I put out, I started a a website called D. DIY, do it yourself, DIY, um, and I called it diversity in yoga, but then in the narrative narrative before it, I was like, no one's talking about racism in yoga and and racism in general and why as yogis, we're already like low-hanging fruit to be thinking about these things. Like, why aren't we talking about these? So I made this website for people to have conversations about race. And I called it DIY because exactly that. I was like, if no one's going to do it, then do it yourself. Um, unfortunately, I've sort of always, this sounds maybe, I hope this doesn't come across as obnoxious, but I, I feel like I've always, part of my uh, karma is to always be like ahead of my time. And so therefore to not like get a lot of traction <laughs> on certain things. And then, and then to have to do the ego bruising and wounding and, and like licking of my wounds to see that five, six years later, that thing that I thought was like so awesome that no one seemed to care about is like all over the place. And people are like, look at this person who's doing this amazing work. And it's part of my dharma to be able to just accept that instead of constantly having to go, but I, but me, but I was doing that. But anyway, yeah. So I, I had, I made that website. It's still up there somewhere. DIY diversity and yoga. Anyway. Yeah. Do it yourself. Cool. Um, I've always said uh, that yoga is a DIY enterprise because it really doesn't work until you do it yourself. Um, and it's just so much, I mean, those, those worlds for me, like growing up as a indie musician, like up into punk rock and heavy metal um, it, and then finding yoga, like yoga just made total sense to me because I didn't, once I learned how to do it, I didn't need anyone else and I didn't need to pay for classes. You know, I've always, you know, wanting to live as an artist and try to maintain that as much as I can, which often means that you don't have a whole lot of money. So something like yoga, I think is just so amazing for people who want to do it themselves and want to take care of their own health and wellness. And, um, yeah, so it's just, yeah, I used to always call yoga punk rock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I say the same thing. Cool. Well, uh, so then talk to me about how you started this integrated movement therapy and what was the transition from Ashtanga into that? Yeah, so that's totally, it's, it goes right with what you were saying. It's totally, it was the DIY thing. So I was working at a hospital. I was a speech pathologist. 
um, and working in a clinic in uh, at Group Health up in Seattle. Um, and I specialized in working with kids with autism or other developmental challenges. And then I also specialized in working with stroke survivors and people with traumatic brain injuries. And all the while, I was still really dedicated to my yoga practice. And all the while, I was also playing in these different bands. And I just began to feel in my clinical practice um, a, a, few, a few key things. Um, one was that uh, the culture that I had been trained in and the culture that I was working in clinically was one that that sort of by definition looked at what was wrong with people. So by definition, we looked at the pathology, and then my job was to fix that. So whatever you know, you are have autism spectrum disorder. My job is to sort of make that not so because that's that's wrong. That's not as it should be. So that was one observation. Um, that while I was practicing yoga, I was I was learning. Um, a different way of thinking. And again, going all the way back to apparently 1987, that seed had been planted that there's not anything wrong, right? That, that we are, we're perfect. And so that was the first piece is I realized I didn't want to work in a culture that profited off of uh, the narrative of people's brokenness. The second piece was that I found over and over and over that um, a lack of like a true sense of self, like a deep self-esteem, a deep um, like self-efficacy was a lot of what was leading people into despair, into inabilities to heal. I don't want to say inability to heal themselves. A, a difficulty in accepting or working with what they'd been dealt. So I would see folks, for example, who sustained a traumatic brain injury or sustained a stroke and people who already felt really bad about themselves I was aware had a more difficult road ahead of them than folks who previous to their stroke had had like a very strong sense of who they were. And then I would also see a lot of, I worked a lot of kids with like language-based learning disabilities and same thing. I would see over and over that once I shut my clinic door, my office door, these kids that were supposedly like had language processing issues or behavioral issues or, you know, academic issues that primarily essentially what they had was a completely depleted sense of self, a completely eroded, um, and, you know, yeah, just destroyed sense of who they were and, and their sense of value and worth. So that was the second piece. Um, and I actually came up with this acronym called self-esteem as a learning fundamental. And so I called it self and I had a little folder in my office. And every time I would either have like an anecdotal experience of, of recognizing like this person doesn't have anything wrong with them. They just, you feel like shit about who they are. Like we got to start from there. I would write it down and I put it in my folder. And likewise, if I would come across articles or, or um, any kind of academic information that was supporting that idea about self-esteem being foundational, I would put it in that folder. So that was the second piece was really looking at that in any kind of therapy or any kind of teaching, any kind of sharing. And if we wanted to share with people how to play the bass or I, did you tell me what instrument you played? I mean, I know you played the flute, but Mostly what was your guitar. instrument then? Guitar. Guitar, so, right? Mm -hmm. So even if I wanted to teach someone guitar, 
what I began to realize is that first I would have to make them feel extremely comfortable and that I thought they were great just as how they were and that whatever they came with was fine, right? That attending to the person's sense of well-being and value is absolutely foundational for whatever else I'm going to try to teach them. And we too often miss that step. We miss it in teaching. We miss it in therapy that we just dive right into like, I'm just going to teach you the guitar. I'm just going to teach you yoga. And like, why can't you get this? You know, it's so simple. I just told it to you. Right. But they're already coming with all this, like, I'm not good enough. I can't learn this. I'm stupid. I'm not musical. I'm not athletic, like whatever. And so attending to that piece. And then the third piece was that as a speech pathologist, we weren't really trained in anything having to do with movement. But I would see that when I would go co-treat with colleagues who were um, physical therapists or occupational therapists. So I would take my, let's say, adult stroke survivor, and rather than seeing them in my clinic room, I'd walk over with them to the physical therapist room, and we do our treatments concurrently. All of a sudden, my stroke survivor would be like way more communicative, way more talkative, way more open, just because they were moving. So for those three primary things, the sense of uh, brokenness versus wholeness, the sense of self-esteem building as a foundational aspect of learning, and third, that movement is an inherent part of who we are, I just realized I wanted to work differently as a speech pathologist and that the way that I wanted to work was not going to work in the clinic that I was employed at. So um, I want to acknowledge I want to acknowledge that I'm a white cis woman with tons of privilege. And that's one of the reasons that allowed me to just like quit my job. Not that I had an inheritance or anything, but I've just, you know, I've lived in such a way that I, I could have those kinds of fearlessnesses that not everybody, um, not everybody has the ability to do, but I did. So I was able to quit my job with the support, with the emotional support of my family. And um, when I opened the Samaria Center, I didn't think anything about yoga therapy. I didn't even know there was such a thing as yoga therapy. But I thought, well, I'll open the center and I'll do this sort of like yoga-based therapy that will be around, that will have movement. It will be about building self-esteem and it will be about wholeness. And then while I'm trying to pay the bills doing this weird thing, I'm just going to teach these Ashtanga classes. So, because I could. So I would be, we called it the Samaria Center for Ashtanga Yoga and Integrated Movement Therapy. So we were sort of doing those two things concurrently. So um, I don't remember how exactly in 2001 Yoga Journal became aware of my work with um, kids with autism but they did, and they did a little piece on me uh, called something about, I don't remember what it was called, but it was a, t- a 2001 yoga journal piece, and it was about work with autism. And if, if my memory serves, which it probably doesn't, um, then I was contacted by John Kepner, who's still the executive director of International Association of Yoga Therapists, and I believe he has a nephew who is autistic. So he was, he was interested in what I was doing, and, and that was the first time I was like, what international association of yoga therapists. What is that? Um, So at his behest, it was the first time I wrote down what I was doing and I codified what I was doing and I made it like a thing instead of, I was always calling it integrated movement therapy, but because no one was questioning me, I didn't have to say what I was doing. I was just, I was just doing me. Right. So that was the first time I really codified it. But I will say that at that same time, I distanced myself, um, 
I, I intentionally distanced myself from yoga therapy because although I was glad to be recognized by the International Journal of Yoga Therapists, I also wanted to make it really clear that I was a clinician, that I had training, that I had experience, um, that I didn't go to some, you know, yoga therapy didn't mean anything in those days. Frankly, I don't think it means anything now, sorry. Um, but it definitely didn't mean anything in those days. And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing held some, held the weight of the experience and the clinical training that I had that I had had. So I kept myself really separate from yoga therapy for a long time. And I would say yoga based therapy in the beginning. And I guess the other thing that's sort of ironic is that when I made my first flyers for integrated movement therapy, well, you'll appreciate this as a fellow punk rocker. I, I didn't make flyers like a normal person would make. I had them all individually hand screen printed. And so whenever anyone would be like, oh, I'm interested in your brochure, I'd like hand them one. But I'd be like, if you're not going to like buy my services, I need that brochure back from you because, you know, <laughs> it cost me $2.50 to make so I was like a horrible business person. But at that time, I, I didn't put the word yoga in integrated movement therapy because I was like, yoga is so weird and out there. If I put the word yoga in it, no one's going to want my services, right? I had no idea that 20 years later, like you put the word yoga in something and it's just, you know, gobbled up. Mm. So, yeah. yeah wow. Um, it's no surprise to me that you've become a, you became a speech therapist. <laughs> <laughs> You've really got the gift of gab. Oh, thank you. I guess. Thank you. Yeah. I no, no, it's a compliment. You can really uh, express yourself freely. It's great. Um, okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. please. Because I want to hear in your words how you explain this to people. So one of the fundamental philosophies of your integrated movement therapy is that the student is already perfect and whole. So my question is, if we're already perfect and whole, why do we need therapy? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Luckily, I fielded that question for about 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> you got your answer down pat. Let's hear yeah. it. <laughs> well, it's one of the things I do in my trainings. We, we look at the core, uh, the overarching philosophies. And then as part of the training, I ask the students to think of anything that would challenge that belief. And then we talk through it. So absolutely. So it, it's, it's simply a paradigm shift. So in our material bodies, I, I call them impediments to joy. So um, for example, a person could... Uh, well, I've been in a state of, uh, I'll just speak personally, of, of total bereavement for the past, you know, since October, well, since the past three and a half years, but certainly since October 19th, 2018, when, I, when uh, my sister died. Um, and so what I would say is that the state of me is perfect and whole. Like, there's nothing wrong with me by being in bereavement. There's nothing wrong with bereavement. There's nothing wrong with me because of the different ways I have acted and reacted to that, to that, um, to that grief and to that incident. But there's lots of things throughout that that have created impediments to joy. So, for example, um, I one thing I did not know about grief, or I didn't fully understand, is this rage, this unspecific rage that came with it. I'm not usually a super angry person or rageful person, but I felt like I walked around and it's, it's mostly off now, but I felt like I had like, a, I should be wearing like a sign that said, be very careful because whatever you say to me, 
I might just like come at you. Um, or another way I would sometimes say it to people is like, I just felt like I was waiting for someone to say something that would piss me off so that I could have an outlet for rage and that I would just go off on you with no care about like what I looked like or what the, um, you know, whether the intensity of my rage matched the, the trigger for it or any of that. So that's not, that's not perfect. Like that's not good. That's not helpful. That's not helpful for me. That's not helpful for the people that ended up in the wake of my rage. And mainly I would end up after I, if I would have any kind of a rageful incident, then I would end up in shame and guilt and more sorrow. And, you know, as they say in Buddhism, shooting that second arrow of just how like gross I am and how inappropriate I am. And so there's this differential between the, the, the sort of what, what maybe um, Patanjali would call, like, I don't know that Patanjali would say the divine spark, but how we sometimes interpret <laughs> Patanjali, like the divine spark or our true nature, like that's always perfect and whole. But the cloak that we're wearing oftentimes does things or doesn't do things that creates greater difficulty in that in that natural tendency towards love to express itself, that natural tendency towards, um, towards self-realization um, to express itself. And, and that's why we need therapy. So even if a person had, you know, sustained a severe stroke, the stroke in and of itself, or I look at my teacher Ramdas, right? Like he would say even the stroke is perfect and whole, right? But, and, and I guess I could say that too, that it's all part of this divine unfolding, but within that, there's all kinds of pain and difficulty that are encountered by carrying that huge burden. And as a therapist, we can help people to carry that burden, or we can help to show people ways that they can carry that burden, but that the inner part of them has never changed. There's nothing broken about them fundamentally. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned Patanjali, and I think I would paraphrase Patanjali's main message as future suffering can be avoided if we stop over-identifying with our egoic temporal self and start identifying more with that eternal part of us, that consciousness that's been there since we opened our eyes when we were born, right? Absolutely. That's, yeah, I love 216, 217. That's my like geeky yoga moment. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I don't know if you've heard of, um, if you know who Bede Griffiths is, he became Swami Dayananda. Yeah. yeah. So Bede Griffiths, um, if there's anyone who doesn't know who Bede, that sounded rude. Uh, many people probably don't know who Bede Griffiths is because I certainly didn't. So he is a Benedictine monk that went over to India um, he stayed Catholic. He stayed Christian. Um, he didn't convert to Hinduism, but he took on a lot of the Hindu practices and saw how they were complementary and mapping towards Christian um, ideology. And one of the things that I love that he talks about, or at least he was the first person I heard talking about, how he talked about how original sin as put forth by, later by Christians was this original sin that we were born broken, that we were born as sinners and we needed to like crawl our way back up to, you know, the good graces of this punitive and petty God. Whereas in B. Griffith's view, which comes directly from Hinduism, and, and, that, and he would say that and from the uh, Vedantic knowledge stream, is that the only original sin, as it were, is that we just forgot what, what, what Patanjali would say is a vidya, right? That we just forgot 
that we've always been perfect. That's the sin. So the sin isn't that we're sinners. The sin, as it were, is that we forgot that we were always that we were always okay. And so exactly going back to that heyam dukkha managatam, that we wouldn't be in such a state of perpetual suffering if we could come to the awareness that we are um, holy divine beings living this, this human life and that one of our, our prime objectives is to reveal that divinity you know, ever more throughout our lifetimes. And if we have the luxury and the access and the capacity to also help other people to unveil and reveal back to their own selves, their own original divinity. Hmm. And I think we skip that step a lot in therapy and we skip that step a lot in, in teaching and we, we skip that just a lot in life, but we skip it a lot in therapy. We don't, we don't see that as being important. Yeah. Well, you know, over the past uh, number of years, um, I've been training on different psychotherapeutic methods uh, because I was teaching people one-to-one. Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I learned in the Krishnamacharya Desikachar tradition. So kind of post-Ashtanga where Krishnamacharya developed his teachings and his son then picked up on that and really, I think, mm-hmm. created the first yoga therapy center back in the 70s in India. Um, yeah. So I started teaching one-to-one because that was part of the tradition. And what I found was that people were coming to me with their life problems. Um, and so I really felt a need to gain some more skills and fluency in, in therapy, like psychotherapy. And uh, one of the things that I found is, especially with this increased awareness around trauma and PTSD, is that sometimes I think people start to identify with the symptoms of trauma and it almost becomes their identity. And what I've always tried to do is um, have them keep their eyes on the prize, which is their, their true nature, and that the trauma is something that they've experienced, which actually disconnected them from that, and that that disconnection is actually the trauma, not the event that happened. Um, and yeah, as you're speaking, you know, I was reminded of uh, that, that um, phrase by Christ, where he said, uh, be uh, in the world, but not of the world. So to to be more than just what we think of as our personality and uh, our conditioning, um, yeah. But still, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And first of all, I just I want to really thank you and acknowledge and um, just for being this model of saying, well, if I'm going to be doing this work with people, I should go and get some more training, um, and and try to address these different nuances because I think uh, in some ways, especially in the yoga world we have this tendency to either just like gather up workshops, 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 or we're like, oh, well, look, this person's coming to me with this thing and I'm just this super intuitive person, so I'll just do this, you know? And and that um, oftentimes if a person is having like a good experience, something I say a lot in IMT, if a person's having a good experience, we equate that with us doing good work. But once we're at that therapeutic level, we have to be able to separate out. Like a person could have a really good experience with me and I could still not be a very good therapist. Like I could still not be actually making them, helping them to make the changes that they need to make or that they'd like to make. So I just want to acknowledge that how much I appreciate your um, 
your openness and in, in, in sort of sharing that. And then, yes, I'd agree um, so much. I, two things particular come to mind is one I've done, um, extent, one of my extensive areas once I left group health what is working with childhood sexual trauma. And I, I don't want to be the arbiter or to say that this is the right way at all. Everyone's on their own journey. But one of the things that I have found is that childhood uh, survivors of childhood sexual trauma, we can go through these different ways that we sort of name ourselves. And one maybe is a victim and one then is a survivor. And then for me, and what has helped a lot of the folks that I work with is even losing that language as well. So I'm neither a victim nor a survivor. I'm a person who has experienced that thing. And yes, it's shaped my life. And yes, it's shaped a lot of my um, responses and, and my ways of moving in the world. So it's one of the experiences that shapes the whole of me. And it's not an experience... Um, that I think is good or that I would ever want to repeat, obviously. Um, uh, but I don't have to identify it as, as, as somehow being an identity because then it, it does sort of take over. And, and so that, that's one aspect. And then another aspect that you touched on that I want to agree with is um, I feel like we're moving it away, away from it a little bit, but a couple of years ago, we really started this culture in yoga about and of uh, people being triggered, and then there was triggered, and then there was trauma informed, right? So all of a sudden, I could say I'm triggered by everything, and what I really most of the time meant triggered, at least in in my experience, what I've seen. Most of the time when people are saying they're triggered, what they mean is they're annoyed or like they, they are activated in the sense of like, you've pissed me off or like that's brought up a lot of feelings in me, which in the mental health world, being triggered is a wholly different thing. But what I started to see was yoga people going around and particularly at a, um, some conferences that I have been involved in where people are just walking around the whole time. They're just triggered and triggered and triggered. And, um, and then, as you said, when, when, when people are calling out sort of this, this mental health uh, terminology, then we meet it with a mental health intervention. So now all of a sudden I'm going to treat you with this trauma-informed way of being because I, I need to do an intervention because you're, you're, you're having this triggered experience. And we, we've really, what, what I think, <laughs> what I've actually said to colleagues that haven't always appreciated it is that in, when we do that, we're basically putting on conferences that are saying, hey, I want to teach you something that completely doesn't work um, because I can't manage any of my own feelings. I'm annoyed at everything. Every time someone says something that I don't like, I'm activated. Um, I engage in predatory listening. Um, I spend a lot of time ruminating on things that I don't like that another person said. So um, I feel that we're getting out of that a little bit, but I think it's an important, I, I think it's still an important topic of conversation for people to look at how they're using both the words trigger and what that experience of triggering is, and then also what, what is trauma informed, especially with regard to yoga, what does it actually mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I would hope that as yoga practitioners, or I'm just going to step over even into people with a deep contemplative practice, that one of the fruits of that practice is that I'm less activated, um, which I don't want to be conflated with. I don't think you should respond when a person says something that patently does, you know, 
take you back to a place of feeling uh, like I can't get out of here. I'm trapped. I'm scared. I'm disassociating. So I'm not, I'm not saying that if you were contemplative enough, you wouldn't have those experiences. I want to make that clear. I'm not saying that at all. But I think with contemplative practices, we're able to have some discernment around what is something that's just pissing me off or irritating me, or I think that person's an asshole versus I'm, I'm triggered. Like I'm, I need, I need help right now. Like I need help because I'm, I'm de, de, uh, disintegrating. Mm-hmm. It's important to make those distinctions. Okay, there's a lot in there, and there's a couple of things that I just want to highlight. Um, the, the first thing is, you know, I think that's really interesting what you said about how people can go from identifying as the victim into the opposite polarity of identifying as the survivor. And I would say that both those identities are equally limiting. And, and your kind of uh, suggestion is to see yourself as someone who's experienced. And I would say that maybe there's the equanimity there that, yes, I am someone who was victimized and I'm someone who survived that. I am both. And like the yogi, be able to uh, hold the middle of that. And I think that's really important actually, because uh, often you see that is then people craft their whole identity around being a survivor and it even becomes their livelihood. Um, And I think that's just equally as limiting as any other kind of uh, identification. Now, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned a distinction between the clinical use of the word trigger and the kind of colloquial use of trigger. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I I will with a, the caveat of I've, I've actually written on this and so it's not and I'm not this is not my area of expertise. So, um, and I don't have something right in front of me that that has a specific definition. So with that caveat, I'm going to do the best I can to to explain what I what I think I know and what I recall. So when we think about someone being triggered in the mental health world, what it means is that I, someone or something has happened and I, as the experience in that moment, I'm like fully taken back to a visceral experience of when this thing has traumatized me in the past. And, um, and so, and all my whole being, my physical being, my physiologic being, my chemical being is having a full reaction as if that thing is happening to me again, right? That trauma is, I'm re-experiencing that trauma right now. And that when we think of someone being triggered in that way, it's really a moment that, that hopefully they're, they're few and far between, but it's really a moment where, where some sort of intervention makes sense and is, the, is, and is the kind and appropriate thing to do is to help someone or give someone tools to help themselves to get out of that state of, um, of, of uh, flight, fight, or freeze, I guess we could say, that extreme sympathetic activation versus the colloquial, colloquial use of trigger, as I see it just used pretty constantly in the yoga world, what I see that being equated with is that that annoyed me, that made me angry. Um, and it might even remind me like you, let's say I don't, I've got a, I've got a great dad. Well, I mean, not without problems with it. 
I always, I hate to talk about, use my parents as an example. But anyway, let's say you said something to me that like, I had, I had an ex boss who was just like, we, you know, we didn't get along at all. And you said something to me that reminded me of that boss, right? I might have an experience of like being activated by that being like, ugh, having some of those same feelings of when I had that boss, you know? So, uh, one might call that being triggered. What I would say the difference would be is if I had a boss who was like, had had traumatized me, maybe who had assaulted me or um, otherwise like been emotionally or, uh, you know, psychologically abusive to me. And you were saying things to me that were bringing me all the way back to that experience, that my entire physiology was beginning to go back in time and that I'm in that experience again now. So even though you're not even that boss, I've been triggered in such a way that my entire being is reacting as if you were that boss and I was still in that same position. So to me, that's, that's the difference. And I think we need to use some viveka, some discernment around how we use that word because what I think it does is, first of all, it, it trivializes folks who are being triggered. It's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf. We don't know who to attend to when. And I think it also, what I think is maybe sadder just as like a spiritual practice is what it's, it's doing is not asking us to, in those very moments, maybe those would be the moments that this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Like someone says something to me and I feel really activated, but I can rely in that moment on my contemplative practices to think about what resources do I have? What skills do I have? What dualistic way am I looking at this person that's allowing me to be activated in this way? Like, so... Yeah. Where am I misperceiving the situation? And, and what yeah. is that based on? It's based on a memory. Like Patanjali gets into all this stuff, which is why I love Patanjali so much. Um, yeah. And okay. So I just want to pause here for a moment because you're talking about this, um, being able to discern between a real kind of visceral trauma based trigger and this uh, sense of being activated. Now, I know that when I'm activated, there can be a visceral response. You know, maybe the heart rate comes up, like if I'm pissed off at someone, someone said something that activated me, the heart rate comes up, blood rushes to my face, uh, maybe butterflies in the stomach or something like that. There's kind of a fear response, whatever it is. And I think in able to discern between these two reactions, it takes a high level of somatic uh, attunement, right? And so is this something that you work with people on is developing a kind of uh, a deeper sensitivity and attunement and discernment into what's happening in their body? Is this part of your IMT approach? Absolutely. And it's part of my yoga approach um, in teaching yoga as well. Absolutely. So I'd say again, two things. One is I talk a lot about the body as the gateway. So 
um, recalling that when I when I came to integrated movement therapy and my clinical training wasn't a lot about the body. So uh, again, when people think of yoga therapy, it's one of again the reasons why I don't consider integrated movement therapy yoga therapy because I don't. There's no prescriptive aspect of yoga or yoga asana. Um, it's simply the idea that the body is our most available. Uh, in yoga speak, like our most available sheath, our most available layer that we can really be in touch with, that we can, you know, we, we know when, if we get pricked by a pin, we know like where the pain is, we can point to it. So we can develop awareness of the physical body and more and more subtle awareness of the physical body as a means to develop awareness of what's happening energetically and emotionally. And then at the same time, in all of my, any time, whether it's in a therapeutic session or just a, you know, I don't think I teach anything that could be considered a regular yoga class anymore, whatever that might be. But we're always stopping multiple times, just stopping what is happening right now in my physical body, what's happening right now in my energy body, what's happening right now in my mind and in my heart. And we just stop, we pause, we gain awareness, and then we move on. So that practice of being able to feel into the physical body, the energy body, and the emotional body, and to discern what's happening, but also discern that something could be happening in my physical body that's not happening in my energy body or vice versa, right? I could have something happening either emotionally that's not manifesting physically or, or not, yeah, or, or vice versa. And so that also gives us different ways to, um, different entrees into how to, how to work with, with what's happening um, at any moment. And, and to feel more of a sense of optimism and, and hopefulness. If I can recall on those days where I'm just like, just everything sucks, you know, just to think and stop and go, well, actually, no, my physical body is okay. So I could like take a walk or, you know, I, there, there's ways for, or even when a person is dying, like your physical body is, you know, definitely not okay in terms of optimal health, but you might be able to say, but you know what, emotionally I'm moving closer and closer and closer to um, a state of equanimity. And so I, I, uh, I don't have to have like o overwhelmed by all of that at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking lately about, um, you know, my teacher, Mark would, uh, well, he would say that Krishmacharya would say this thing. And I always question, you know, is that actually true? Cause Krishmacharya didn't speak a lot of English, but he's got a lot of these quotes attributed to him. So <laughs> that disclaimer made, <laughs> he said that, uh, Pain is the unavoidable motive for practice, you know, and I do think that's true. It's like when I, um, when I really started to wake up to my own suffering and that a lot of that was self-created suffering, that's when I really got into yoga, um, started practicing with more intention and regularity. Um, so definitely like my suffering is something that brought me to a, a deeper exploration of yoga. But lately I've been thinking too, that also joy is an unavoidable motive for practice. Um, and that joy is a beautiful motive for practice because if we've got this embodied practice that can be an expression of joy and contentment and feeling whole, like on the good days, practice, because that's going to give you a resource that's going to carry you through those rough times, like what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like a really deep felt, like holistic sense of 
feeling okay. And that's like just as important as having all of these tools to um, kind of manage when the stress and anxiety get too much or whatever, you know, like we need those experiences of wholeness and perfection to carry us through the tough times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I teach my therapists um, as well as, as clients in therapy is to um, when I, when I think about these developmental continuum continua, I guess you would say um, is to, to spend time acknowledging like, Oh, look, I'm really happy right now. Or like, or even I just, that thing that I just did, that was really good. Like, Oh, I, you know, I, I just did this really generous thing and I feel good. Like I'm acknowledging that because, and then we, and then we want to get off that. We don't want to stay there. Um, but we have no problem ruminating on and acknowledging and thinking about all the things that we didn't do well or all the ways that we're not feeling good or the things that we wish we could have done differently. So we allow those to make pretty deep, um, we could either say samskaras or I would also say neural networks. Um, same, so, same. Yeah. So I, I always call Patanjali's yoga the original CBT, the original cognitive. Totally. totally. But I think, it's, I think it is really an important developmental stage that, that we miss is to spend time acknowledging our goodness and the goodness that we do and the goodness that we feel and like our, our luck and our privilege and the joy that we feel. Because uh, we tend to think that that's like self-serving or that that's um, conceited or that that's, uh, I don't know what. Um, so, yeah, we're, yeah, we're like nar narcissistic or whatever, exactly. right? Like exactly. grandiose, inflated. Right. We got all these like derogatory terms for that. And yet, like, this is one of the issues I have with a lot of the therapy as I've been exploring it. I've been really trying to find something that's congruent with my approach to yoga, which is definitely like a, a positive approach, like focusing on what is good and right and seeing everything else as maybe an interruption of that or a disruption of that. And okay, so how can we reduce that disruption? But, you know, yeah. as you're talking, I was thinking about how much um, play we give to the idea of the inner critic. And we're always talking about the inner critic and everything. But what about the inner praiser? Like, let's give the platform to the inner praiser and acknowledge that part of ourselves too, right? But I never hear anyone talk about that. <laughs> I love, I've never heard that the inner praiser, but it's it's great, and I think I think mainly we don't talk about it because we don't even allow it to exist. Yeah. If we have a moment like this, I'll just say this right now at at fifty three years old and like looking at how I've changed and how my body's changed and everything. There's this constant narrative of like, Ugh, you know, and so <laughs> I've been doing this thing with my husband. This is embarrassing. I don't care. I'm going to say it. That I'll be like Tim. Sometimes I'll be like, look how pretty I am. Or I'll be like, look how cute I look today. Or like, look at this lipstick I put on. Look how attractive I am. And he knows I'm like, I'm joking, not joking, right? Like, but it's not like I'm walking around in the world being like, I'm like the most beautiful woman in the world. But I'm using that, like I'm seeing, I'm allowing myself to say out loud the times when I pass by a mirror and I go, you're actually kind of cute. You know, I'm letting myself say that out loud because even to allow that thought to come in my mind is a revolution because I have had no difficulty as I'm sure most people and definitely most women, I've had no difficulty walking by a mirror and going, uh, uh, oh, uh, you know, that's, 
that's constant and that's totally accepted. And so not only is that voice not, it's not amplified on the outside or the inner praiser because it's, it's shut down on the inside. If I even have that moment of like, oh, I'm actually kind of cute, whatever, then immediately that's shut down by why are you so egocentric or like, no, you're not. Look at your, you know, whatever. Yeah, or yeah. Like you're fishing for compliments <laughs> or something, right? Right, totally. But I love that you've uh, been f- felt free enough to be playful with your husband with this, you know? Like, I think that's so great because to voice it is like an act of magic is like, or a reworking of the samskaras or developing a new neural pathway, however we want to talk about it, but it is having a, an effect and it is changing your mind and how you see yourself. And I think it's great. Like if you're feeling cute or sexy, you know, just say it out loud. And like, you know, if your partner is like, if your partner's, uh, you know, kind of a playful, loving person too, then they'll want to like affirm that, you know, and like, yeah, you're looking pretty good, baby. Like, I love yeah. that. That kind of dynamic is so great. And to be playful about it rather than, um, I really need you to tell me that I'm beautiful. <laughs> it's like, right, right, right. That, no, because that's coming from this place of like, <laughs> like it has to be generated by you originally. And I think the other piece too is, so one of the things from my Samaria community, we have a commitment to no body talk, no body image talk, no diet talk. And um, that's a whole other episode, but that's a revolutionary act, again, particularly for women. Um, I think men can also learn it and benefit from it both individually, but also in what they say. Um, so, So we make that commitment as part of our community. At the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge, um, so at the same time, uh, certain yoga communities or, or lessons or contemplative communities, we might also say that to, to talk about the body at all or let's see, what am I trying to have observations about the body at all is like shallow or superficial. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, acknowledge that it may or may not be shallow or superficial, but it's a loud narrative in our world. So it's an extremely loud narrative to talk, to think about what you look like and are you looking good enough? It's a, it's one of our earliest messages along with white supremacy um, is the supremacy of the idealized body. So we can't get away from that narrative. And so I think it's, I think it's important to hold both, like to not buy into conversations that are denigrating ourselves and denigrating our body image or that we like have to punish ourselves. Or if I eat this chocolate brownie, well, tomorrow I have to atone for that in some way. So I think that's important, but it's, it's important that within that, that we don't act like the body doesn't exist or that these insecurities, and like now I'm in the aging mode, um, that these insecurities don't exist. Like they do exist. And so how do we work with them skillfully? So rather than ignoring it because I'm so yogic, I don't even see it. You know, how do I, how do I work with it? Because it is a, it's a huge source of suffering. It's a huge source of mm. suffering for so many people. So do you, I mean, do you walk a line, uh, because we're in such a kind of a sensitive culture right now when it comes to talking about bodies and, you know, things like fat shaming, that kind of thing. But there is the reality that some people are engaging in unhealthy behaviors that are reflected in their body and their overall health. Um, but it almost seems like these days it's taboo to even talk about that, to suggest that someone might be overeating or 
emotionally eating, and that's having a negative effect on their health. And out of care for them, you want to talk to them about that and you want to maybe have them investigate that and see what's behind that behavior. I mean, is that something that you approach or how do you feel? No, because unfortunately I I fundamentally disagree with you on that one, Brian, that, um, that I think there are all kinds of reasons why people are unhealthy in their bodies. However, it expresses themselves. A person could be too thin. They could have chronic stomach aches. They could have a larger body. They could have, um, you know, more wrinkles. They might not wear enough sunblock, like whatever. So one is that I don't know where that's coming from. It's also none of my business. Like it's not, it's not up to me. So one of the primary tenets, one of the things I loved from speech pathology is that one of the ways, the definition of having a communication disorder, a communication issue, is that you yourself identify that as an issue. And so if I, let's say, for example, I stuttered, but I didn't identify that as being an issue for me, then according to the the practice, the clinical practice of speech pathology, that is a non-issue. So the pathology itself doesn't get to be an issue. It's only an issue when the person acknowledges it as an issue. And so I think about that in IMT all the time, that I could meet someone with any any sort of thing. Um, you know, I shoot, I mean, I know a billion alcoholics down here where I live in Mexico. Um, throughout all my whole life, I've knew, known a billion chronic pot smokers, you know, and I could want to say to those people, well, I don't think that you should be doing that because of whatever reason, but it's none of my business. Like they don't think it's a problem. Um, and it's not hurting me and it's not hurting them. As far as I know, when I look at all of the different levels of their being, um, and I think if we're specifically talking about larger bodies, um, that, again, one of our, our cultural narratives for so long has been around fat equals unhealthy, and that's just an unkind and um, untrue and unhealthy narrative that I just uh, am not willing to per- per- perpetuate. So, mm-hmm. no. Okay. Well, you know, I agree with you. Fat does not always equal unhealthy. Um, And I only use that example because you're talking about body issues and about this uh, policy that you have at your school. Um, But sometimes overweight does equal unhealthy and often alcoholism does equal unhealthy. Uh, And I mean, I don't think you can deny that. And it's not that I'm saying that as therapists, we ever say you should uh, you shouldn't or should or shouldn't anything. But as therapists, I believe that uh, we're there to mirror people and to, to mirror maybe that whole true self that has been, you know, they've been disconnected from. And um, so maybe they've lost their like inner guidance system in some way. And as therapists, as friends, we can help people refine that so then they can make their own choices that are coming from a place of health and wholeness um yeah i don't know if that needs a response or anything but that's my response uh i don't think we fundamentally disagree uh but maybe we disagree a little bit and that's okay too (laughs) yeah i i understand what you're saying and i would just say as as a um at, at least for, uh, within integrated movement therapy, for example, whether it was a person with a drug addiction or, um, 
or anything that I felt was contributing to their unhappiness there like that that would be the, that would be the biggest thing to me is is this contributing to your unhappiness um, and my goal isn't to show you that it actually is even though you don't see it it actually is so I would need that to come from the person um, but I think that the first step would always be and I and um, going back to where I know we for sure do agree is uh, I think that, that it would always be first just that you're, you're fine. Like you're, you're beautiful and perfect and wonderful. And this, whatever this is, this, um, you know, uh, wrinkly skin or, um, your chronic cough or whatever it might be that's showing up on the outside. Um, to know that that's just an outward expression of, of sort of everything that you've ever been through in this material world and that fundamentally you are absolutely perfect and whole. And if we can really, really work at that place, then um, kind of as you intimated, a person may or may not from that place say, you know, there are certain changes that I want to make to to reflect and honor that. Like I used to do a class called yoga and addiction. And in the very beginning of class, I would always say, I have no, um, I have no intention at the end of this six weeks that you will suddenly not be an addict or that you will have even reduced your use of whatever it is. But what I, what I hope from this class, it, if, if shame, and not that you said this at all, Brian, but if shame and disparaging was a motivator, then we wouldn't have anyone with any problems anymore. So we know that that's not a motivator. (laughs) It's like what you said about joy. So for me, it's always going to the place of like, so you're an addict. So what? So what? What else are you like? What? And then from that place, like you're good, you're amazing. And just like when we talked about uh, people with sexual trauma, like, and you have these experiences and how are those things all coming together? And when I would do those six-week courses, I would say that that's my only hope at the end of six weeks is that the person doesn't see themselves as a shameful person. They see themselves as a completely unique and beautiful and multidimensional and wonderful person. And maybe having a greater feeling of that would motivate them to make some different choices on things that are actually hurting themselves. Or, or hurting their relationships or hurting others. Yeah, which is just hurting themselves. Um, I, you know, I even go a step further, and this largely comes out of my uh, training with Gabor Mate, in that when we look at someone's uh, substance or, or behavior use, like let's say just an addiction to a substance, we actually look at what is the function of the, the substance use or the behavior. Like, what is yeah. the intelligent function of that? Like, what do you actually get out of that that's good? And when we can identify that, people can then start to look for other ways to get that same feeling or sense of power or control or whatever it is that they are lacking that they're looking to the substance or behavior for. Like, that's actually a positive thing. That's a positive impulse to want to feel, like, nurtured or to feel powerful or to feel... Uh, energized or enlivened, you know, um, those are actually really positive impulses that you just happen to be meeting in a behavior that does have a detriment over the long term. So like once we can identify that, I feel like there's almost like a self-correction that starts to take place. So again, it's like, it's like a positive approach for me, you know, like let's look at what's good about the substance use or the behavior and then see what unfolds. 
Yeah, one of the phrases I use a lot, and again, I also teach my therapists, and I learned it from one of the therapists that I accessed, um, is that makes perfect sense. And what I always say is that underneath that, you have a parenthetical that you may or may not say out loud in, in a context, right? So if I can look at you in anything that you're doing, like, I mean... I don't know how much therapy have you done, but you've had an affair. You are addicted to pain medication. You are a binge eater at night, like whatever it is. If my first response to you is like, well, that makes sense. Like that makes total sense that you would do that, Brian. Like yeah. this feeling of like, okay, we're not starting from a place of, of shame. Like you're exactly right. That makes so much sense. And, that's a, and it makes sense as a way to begin a therapeutic relationship. The other piece that I would say is um, IMT is heavily, heavily um, based on the practitioner's contemplative stance, which is not something I was ever taught clinically. And actually most, um, and this could be wrong now, and so I I apologize uh, preemptively, uh, but most even training in mental health therapy, there's not a huge emphasis on the contemplative stance of the practitioner themselves. So the other caveat that I would have for folks, even the most well-meaning folks, we're saying that like, oh, that makes sense. Or we're saying that I don't judge you or whatever it might be. Um, But we haven't really done our own work. And what I believe is that your person can see that. They can see right through that. You're nice. You're you're wearing your yoga thing. We're in this yoga thing. You're so friendly. You're like saying namaste to me. You're saying I don't judge you. But I know you are. (laughs) And I know you've never walked in my shoes. And I know you've never seen what I've seen. And so so at, at, at best, we don't we don't help someone at all, but at worst, we're actually, we do further harm to them, even when we're saying nice things, because they're not coming from a super solid, profound, foundational contemplative stance. And, and that's, that's one of the things I see missing in the way yoga is pack, packaged and marketed now. There's, there's no emphasis on... Uh, really the profound philosophy that it is. Yeah, Svadhyaya, self-reflection. Exactly, yep. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think if you find a good therapist, that's a great way to practice Svadhyaya. If you find someone who is more of a clear mirror themselves because they've got a practice uh, right. and, and they have this practice of getting really clear with themselves so that, yeah, I mean, clear. That's the only word I can really come up with, so I don't want to repeat myself again. Yeah, and how do we learn to be truly non-judgmental, right? Like the prefrontal cortex's job is to judge, 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 judge. So it's not a question. I can't, I want to say I'm non-judgmental, but that, that wouldn't be true. I'm always judging everything, everybody, all the time. So the question is, what do I do with those judgments? And that ability to be able to, one of the things I would often say to my therapy clients is, I don't care what you do. And I mean that in the most loving way possible. Like I'm not here to tell you that you should get out of that relationship or you should cut off contact with your dad or you should do eight, you know, uh, rounds of sun salutations five days a week. doesn't matter to me what you do. You're on your own journey and I'm only here as a person who is like your um, constant cheerleader, um, and, uh, and hopefully providing new ideas, new wisdom, planting new seeds that you then will then, um, 
use in whatever way you use. And my ego is not in any way attached to the outcome of our work together or how you choose to use or not use what I've given you. Yeah, yeah. but that's what practice. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's something that you learn when you start working with people, hopefully, otherwise you're going to burn out super fast because you can't be that invested in the outcome with people. You just right. can't. Um, it's going to keep you up at night. Yeah, for sure. And again, that when we talked about IMT, that was one of the big reasons why I quit the clinic is because I luckily learned at a relatively young age that I was trained and expected to be the person that would do the fixing. And, and, and I would literally go home with so much chronic pain that I couldn't like lift things up. And I, I didn't put it together right in the very beginning. And then I began to put it together and I was like, it's because I'm trying to do something that I, I just... I can't do this. It's not a reasonable task to ask somebody. And so you're right. I became a way, way, way better therapist, way more effective therapist, um, and a way more joyful therapist when I realized that I can't change anybody. <laughs> I can set up conditions for change. That's all I can do. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so you've mentioned uh, contemplation and contemplative practice for quite a while. And I, the reason why I reached out to you is because uh, it's probably your most recent newsletter. You mentioned that you had just completed a two-year program at Richard Rohr's Living School, which is uh, part of a contemplative Christian, uh, I guess, community. And there's a center in New Mexico, right? And yes. it's interesting because I've been tuning into uh, his talk his talks for the past little while and really loving um, what he has to say and uh, feeling a lot of resonance um, with his approach to mystic Christianity in this like very modern context, somewhat influenced by Buddhism, I think, um, and, and my own yoga practice and the kind of way that yoga and even plant medicines have brought me back into a relationship with like the living Christ as Thich Nhat Hanh, um calls the spirit of Christ, not the man Jesus, who we often conflate with the Christ. And that's maybe something we can talk a little bit about. But uh, how, okay, so <laughs> somewhere along the way, you had a come to Jesus moment, or was this something that was always part of your uh, upbringing? Were you always a, a Christian? And, you know, when did you start to investigate contemplative Christianity? Um, well, I was raised Catholic. Um, and, you know, pretty, pretty Catholic, I guess you would say. I didn't go to Catholic school, though some of my older siblings did, but, you know, Catholicism was a, was a very large part of our, of our life experience, and so it was a seed that was planted early. Um, I think what happened is uh, probably when I started uh, being mostly more interested in Vedanta and studying Vedanta and reading things like the Sermon on the Mount according to Vedanta, or um, The Yoga of Jesus by Paramahansa Yogananda. Um, and then I started studying at the Vedanta Society. And at any Vedanta Society, they'll have a picture of Christ on their altar. Um, and um, I, I really began to, to wonder and be curious about how uh, these things mapped so clearly. And also how it seemed like Christianity, as I was taught it, or as I understood it, I should say, was um, fearful and skeptical of 
all things non-Christian, and yet this Vedantic study was very embracing and actually held up the figure of Christ and the figure of Jesus as an incarnation of the universal Christ as something that was like, look, here, here's a yogi, like here's someone who did it, you know? So, so they love, I'd say the yogis love Jesus. Um, so, so that seed was already, was, had been planted. Um, and then I had just a, I guess a divine experience where I began, uh, when I was looking for a, a space to do my yoga teacher trainings and I was referred to a retreat center out in the mountains of Eastern Washington that is, was an ecumenical Christian, um, Christian retreat center. And so I started doing my yoga teacher trainings up there and I was sort of like, there are pictures of Jesus all over the place, but I just kind of, you know, I was just doing my yoga thing and they were into it and, you know, they were doing their Christian thing and sort of whatever. We didn't really meet too much, but I became friends with the founder of the retreat center and her name is Liz Kammerer. She's about 80, I think she's 85 years old now. She's one of my uh, most important friends and teachers. And um, we just started taking walks together whenever I was up there and I wanted to get away from my students and I wanted to get away from yoga. I would take walks with her. And she is a spiritual director um, in the Jesuit tradition. She's a Lutheran herself. Um, and she is uh, a big fan of Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau and Ilya Delio and all of these um, people that are teaching this particular type of Christian mysticism. And she would just talk to me in her soft, gentle, mystic way about these teachers. And I would just, it was blowing my mind. I was like, I would take these walks with her on my lunch break and then I'd go back to my students. I'd be like, okay, mind blown. We're talking about yoga. I was just talking to this mystic. She's talking about everything related to Christ consciousness and she's talking literally about the exact same thing we're talking about, but she's using different words. And so she began to ask me, uh, I asked her for recommendations for books, and I started reading a lot of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, um, Ilya Delio, who's very impenetrable, I don't necessarily recommend. Sorry, Ilya. Um, and then a little bit of Richard Rohr. And then she simultaneously was asking me for things like, um, do I have a particular translation of the Upanishads that I could recommend to her because she wanted to know more about that literature. So we just began this incredible exchange. Um, and then she talked about this retreat that she went on with Richard Rohr in this conference. And then she started talking about this living school. And then I was like, I'm going to apply to that. Like, I didn't really even know anything about it. I just, I kind of looked into it. I was like, that looks cool. Um, and I knew that I had, um, I felt that I had met my limit of yoga trainings. Um, I can't meet my limit in Vedantic training, but as far as like going on like a, I, I couldn't think of any other training I would possibly want to go on of yoga. Like I don't care about how many breaths you take on the in-breath and how long you hold. And then what I don't, I'm not interested in that. I don't care about where you put your knee over your ankle. Like I don't care, but I knew that I needed to keep learning to be a teacher. And so I was like, where am I going to go next? Where am I going to go next? And so this living school thing just kind of dropped in and um, I applied and I was accepted. And, um, and so that was the journey. When I first went in, I, I was always like, well, I just don't identify as Christian. Um, and I still don't identify as Christian, but I would often, and I still, I, I actually graduate in August. I have one last, I go to graduation in August. I have one last symposium. Um, 
And uh, so that's how I came into it. And then, so reading more of Richard, but then also it was reading Howard Thurman specifically, who um, in the book specifically, Jesus and the Disinherited, um, Howard Thurman, for listeners who might not know, is um, a Christian mystic, a black mystic. He was a really important teacher for both uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Um, And he really talks about how Jesus as an incarnation would only and ever have been uh, aligned with the marginalized and most oppressed. Absolutely. And it was only when the uh, Christianity became an imperialistic religion um, during the Roman Empire and, and uh, this sort of empirical uh, domination religion that Jesus got centered as a reflection of this punitive and petty God. Well, that gives no solace whatsoever to people who are on the outside, right? It only continues to reinforce the domination narrative. Um, and so I, I was just fascinated by his book. And, and one of the things I wrote in, in my newsletter at one point was that every time we say like, I was always that person, and I still am very suspicious when I see like uh, Jesus is the way or something on the back, you know, someone's bumper sticker, right? Or like only, or Jesus, you should be saved by Jesus. I'm always like, Ugh, you know, like roll my eyes. And But I realized that every time when I let the name Jesus activate, <laughs> not trigger, right? But activate that kind of like ickiness in me, what I'm actually doing is reifying that domination image of Jesus. So instead, I want to be able to be the person that says, Jesus was an amazing figure. And even my husband will say, yeah, I've come around to say Jesus was a cool guy. And I'm like, even that, like, that's bullshit. That's like just sorting a nod to like, you're not going to denigrate this, this Jesus figure. But by calling him just like, oh, he's a great guy. Like, no, Jesus was an absolutely profound figure. Um, and I believe in incarnation of the universal Christ and of the cosmic Christ. Um, and I believe that Jesus did come into our midst to teach that the only thing that matters is love and that we should always, always be on the side of the most oppressed and the most marginalized and that we should always be using any sort of privilege that we have been by the, by, I was going to say the grace of God, by sheer luck, you know, I ended up in this incarnation and not another one so that I don't take that as if it was my birthright. It was some weird lucky thing that I have. And because of that, it's my job to stand by and open doors for people who don't have that access. And I believe that Jesus is a profound image of that very spirit of of, of punk rock, of advocacy and agitation and not going with the status quo and of fearlessness. Like, I don't give a shit what you think about me. I don't care. I don't care if you're going to kick me out of your club because I didn't tow the party line, right? Hmm. What I care about is that in the short lifetime that I'm afforded on this earth, that I can show the most love and the most alignment with the most marginalized that I possibly can. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think, I don't think it's quite accurate to say that he was fearless. Um, I think there are definitely uh, descriptions of when he was uh, uncertain or fearful. Um, I don't know. Have you seen this recent movie where Joaquin Phoenix plays Jesus? No. I believe it's just called Magdalene. And so uh, Numi Rapace, uh, who is in the... um, uh, girl with the spider tattoo or whatever those movies yeah, yeah. 
she plays mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene. And Joaquin Phoenix's depiction of Jesus is amazing. Uh, he's like creepy, dark, and shamanic at times. Like when he's doing the healing work, it's really like probably what it must have been like. Like it's a little scary. And he goes into like a really deep kind of trance state and he's completely spent afterwards. And it's showing a lot of like kind of his struggle in being this embodiment at a time where he just wasn't really accepted and the support that he got from Mary Magdalene. And who knows if that's like the real story, but it was just like kind of a beautiful depiction that uh, wasn't so kind of glorious and shining as he's normally depicted, you know, like Joaquin Phoenix is, he's got an, he's an interesting looking eye. He's Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix. You know? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that. Cause I would actually, I would backtrack on that. I use the word fearless, but I agree. I don't think the Jesus figure was fearless. I think he was wholly human. I think that was the intention. What I would say was he was bold as love, right. As Jimi Hendrix would say, right. Like that he yeah. was bold. Um, and not, not, I mean, clearly not, I mean, enough to be crucified, not concerned with what his actions, what the, what might result from those actions. But I think you're right that his humanity and within that, his, his fear, um, is an important aspect for, thank you for pointing that out. I also wonder if you, have you ever heard of a book? I think it's called the gospel of Mary. It's a short novella by Colm Tobin, I think is his name. I can send it to you after. It's a very short novella that talks about what, what Mary Jesus's mother would have experienced as Jesus as her son. And it's the same that what you're talking, I'm totally going to watch this movie. It's the same as what you're talking about, that she was kind of like, he's not all that. And plus he's just going kind of crazy. Um, plus he's really hurting me. Plus he is like rejecting family. Plus I love him. Right. So, um, super powerful as well. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's that's, that's such an important aspect of, of, of Christ or of Jesus, which is like you said, should not be conflated with Christ. And that the, the point of Jesus is that he was an incarnation of, of, of the universal Christ, which is something that we can identify with in his, in his humanity, which is the same reason in that the uh, Hindu tradition and the Hindu knowledge stream, we have all these Ishta Devatas, right? That we have all of these different things that we know that the idea of Brahman is too, it's too vast for our mind to conceive of. Like, who would we pray to if we can't name it, see it, describe it, understand it? So instead, you know, as a Hindu in India, I might just designate this tree. And so I'm going to say, well, this tree is the incarnation for me. And this is where I'm going to light my candles. And this is what I'm going to wrap my strings around. And this is what I'm going to pray to. And, um, and, and, and we need things that are, most of us, it, it, unless we are true mystics, we need things that are an intermediary between the vastness of what God truly is or what Brahman truly is or of what the cosmic Christ truly is and what we are as human beings because the distance is, is so great. And at the same time, there's no distance at all. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say what it or suggest what if instead of a tree or a, a murti of uh, Krishna, what if it was like your wife or husband or child who could be the beneficiary of that level of love and devotion? 
Well, that would be amazing. And that's one of the things that Swami Vivekananda offered to us. Um, Hmm. He talked about if you can't conceive of God in its fullness and vastness as Brahman, then start with your fellow human being and treat every human being. And particularly if you already love them, it's probably easier. See that as the full incarnation. And that's ultimately what Richard Rohr's work is about in the work of the Living School is that we are all full incarnations of Christ consciousness. So in all of our messiness, in all of our addiction, in all of our loneliness and suffering and flailing around and making a chaotic mess in the way, in, on the way, we are still a, a, a unique and perfect incarnation of, of Christ itself, of, of the cosmic Christ or of Brahman. Yeah, what you uh, quoted from Vivekananda Reminds me of somebody else. <laughs> love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, right, yeah. Which I always love to qualify. It's like, first you got to love yourself before you can ever hope to love your neighbor. Right. Uh, and I think that's where, like, just coming all the way back around, um, we should wrap this up. I, we, could have, we could keep talking about how this Christian mysticism is influencing your teaching and training, which I'm super interested in. I'm also really interested in your work around grief and dying. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's another podcast, you know, and just (laughs) like ending it with um, love your neighbor as thyself and like kind of where we started talking about yoga and connecting to the perfection and wholeness within each of us. I think that's just like a beautiful kind of, uh, completion to our whole conversation and just to wrap it all in love and starting with self-love and self with the capital S. And then after, hopefully you can come to love of the small S self, you know, right. the, the, the flawed personality with all its hangups and addictions and issues and all of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, you're doing a lot of interesting stuff right now, like I said, and I'd love to have you back on. But in the meantime, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, I have a website that's uh, kind of a disaster right now, but it's, it's all I've got for the moment. And that's at mollylanningkenny.org. Um, you can find me on Facebook at mollylanningkenny. Um, and I'm not sure when this will air, but I have a couple of things coming up. I'll be teaching at the Texas Yoga Retreat um, at the Radha Madhav Dham, which is a Hindu uh, temple, Hindu ashram in Austin, Texas at the end of October. I'm offering a retreat that's on contemplative Christianity and yoga at the end of October at the very retreat center that I told you that changed my life. Um, and then in December, I'm teaching a week-long training on, um, on bedside yoga, so yoga for end-of-life care. So and that's going to be in Mexico, right? That's in Mexico, yep. Yeah, that, that, center, that center that you're working with there just looks absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is indeed. (laughs) Come on down. It'll be getting cold and rainy. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about my dream of uh, splitting time between Canada and Mexico. So we can talk more about that some other time. (laughs) Awesome, Brian. I would love to. Well, I really enjoyed this. What a... um, I don't know. Just, I feel like a lot of resonance with the things that you're saying and your approach and just kind of like your attitude too, you know, like we're both, I think like punk rock yogis with big hearts <laughs> and uh, you know, just cause we can be a little fiery doesn't mean it's not all about love and, 
Um, so I really, I just appreciate you and I really thank you for spending so much time with me and just sharing so much. Thank you, Brian. And, and I would say the same to you. This has been a lovely conversation, a great use of my morning. I feel great on all my levels of being. And, um, and I would just add in that being fiery and, and super real is one of the truest expressions of love that I know. So you just keep on keeping on too. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Have a super day. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and gain access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. And if you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at medicinepathhealingarts.com. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.